church. That was uh, my prayer, along with a few other brothers. We gathered together before service to pray, and that was exactly our prayer, that worship would happen today. Uh, that's what we come for. We're coming here to worship the Lord. We worship Him through song. We worship Him through the love that we have for each other. We worship Him through sitting humbly underneath His Word. All of life is worship. And what a joy to be able to worship uh, with all of you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We just got our first uh, Christmas toy catalog in the mail. Thank you very much, Amazon, uh, for sending that and getting our kids all excited. There are only about 70 shopping days left until Christmas, in case you're counting. Uh, but as I thought about that, you know, one of the things, when you're a kid, Christmas is all about one thing, getting, right? It's all about the presents. What can I get? We got the catalog. I'm going to start making my list. You know, maybe it's some Beats headphones. I want some of those. Maybe the new Stanley water bottle. I'll go for that. Uh, maybe a little Brandy Melville sweats. You know, whatever it is, whatever's on your list, you know, you're going to start making it up. And as a kid, maybe even as an adult sometimes, you're just focused on getting everything that you want. You start strategizing. Okay, grandma can get me this, and mom can get me this, and my cousins can buy me this, and my dad can buy me this, and you start organizing everything because you're only concerned about one thing, getting. But hopefully, as you get older, Christmas becomes less about getting and more about giving. That your delight is not in all the things that you hope to receive, but your delight is in thinking, what can I give to the people that I love. And that's really the heart of what glorifying God is. That you change from a person consumed with getting into a person who now is consumed with giving. That you think, if God gave me his only son to pay for my sins, how would I not want to just give to everyone in my life? Just a small glimpse of what he's given to me. So giving, not getting, is the essence of glorifying God. And we're going to see in this text, in 1 Corinthians 7, that that actually applies to every area of life. Sometimes even to some surprising areas of life. Paul's going to talk about in this chapter, what does it look like as a single person to glorify God? How as a single person can I think about giving and not getting? And then maybe more surprising than that, he's going to talk about as a married person. Even as you think about your sex life, how can you be more concerned with giving than getting as husband and wife? So that's a disclaimer. That's where we're going today. Uh, you know, one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible is that you don't get to choose a topic. Uh, God chooses the topic for you. So I drew the short straw, and I get to talk about uh, sex in marriage. But no, actually, I'm not ashamed to talk about it at all. I think Tim was right last week when he said, like, we shouldn't be ashamed as Christians to talk about sex. We actually know the design for sex. The world's all over the place. Uh, God has actually revealed to us what sex is all about. Uh, and so it's a joy to actually talk about uh, these things together as the body of Christ. But before we do that, we definitely want to pray and ask for God's help as we get into these topics. Father, we are, we are thankful that your word is realistic you know, that your truth is not just pie in the sky. You don't want a people that's so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. You actually give us your word 
And you show how the love that you've given us in Christ actually changes every single area of our life. As husband and wife, it actually changes how we view sex. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Lord, we know that if we just look at these things from purely a human perspective, that we're not going to see the beauty of it. We're not going to receive it as what it is, good truths for our soul. But if your spirit's working, we will receive it. And it will give us joy. And it will give us peace. And it will change the relationships that we have in the home. And it will change our relationships if we're single. Lord, it's a joy that you have brought us here together, that you allow us to sit at your feet under your word and to learn from you. So we want to hear your voice this morning, not mine. I want to hear your voice this morning through your word. So pray that you'd speak to us and shepherd us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So giving, not getting, what does that really, what is that really explains? What does it look like to glorify God as a purchased person? And I think that's a great summary. Giving, not getting. So first, giving, not getting, is the essence of the gospel and the essence of glorifying God. Look back just one chapter here before we even jump into chapter 7. The last two verses of chapter 6, I think in one way, just give a great summary of how should I think about my Christian life. Verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. When you realize that God purchased you, that you were in debt, and you could never pay for that debt, but God paid your debt in your place, he purchased you, you say with Paul, I am not my own anymore. He purchased me. He gave everything for me. So why would I not then want to give everything for him and for the sake of others? And I think we see that's really the pattern of what Paul's been doing this whole book. There's a cross-shaped solution to every problem that you face, every problem that we've talked about. Go back to chapter 6 again. Beginning of chapter 6, Larry preached on lawsuits. And how, what's the solution for lawsuits? Notice Paul doesn't just say, lawsuits, bad, stop doing it, start doing this instead. He doesn't go to rules. He goes to the gospel. I mean, look what he says. Like, after he talks about, you know, his brother going against brother and all of these different things, he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So what's his solution? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, Paul's not saying don't pursue reconciliation, don't even pursue church discipline. He just talked about that. But at the end of the day, if there's no resolution that can be found, rather than go into the courts, just be wronged. Suffer unjustly. Now, where would he get an idea like that? From his Savior. It's like, could you not suffer wrong? Could you not be defrauded? Could you conceive of a world where you allow yourself to actually suffer wrong? Your Savior did. What did Jesus do for you when you owed an eternal debt to him? 
When you were sexually immoral, an idolater, which he talks about in verse 9, when you were practicing homosexuality, when you were a thief, when you were a greedy person, what did he do for you? He suffered wrong for you so that you could be reconciled to him. That's Paul's argument. He's not saying lawsuit's bad. Stop it. He's saying suffer wrong. You have an opportunity to display the love of your Savior to a world that desperately needs him. Could you suffer wrong? I mean, look at the the beauty of the gospel here in verse 9. It says, you're talking about sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy. But then look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Wait, how is that possible? How did those descriptions go from were, or from are, those are who you are, to those were who you were? Because Christ came and laid down his life for you. So that you used to be those things, but you're not those things anymore. And so if he did that for you, could you suffer unjustly for the sake of a brother or a sister, even if they're wrong? So before you go to the courts, just think about your Savior. That's what Paul's saying. Now look at the next thing. Tim preached on sexual immorality last week. Verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me. Notice Paul doesn't disagree with that statement. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. You forgot about all these other rules and all these other laws. No, what does he do? He doesn't go law. He goes gospel. He says, God raised the Lord and he will raise you. You are members of Christ's body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. So the solution to sexual immorality is not like follow these rules, do this better, stop doing this. The solution is understanding I was bought with a price and I'm not my own anymore. And I want to glorify God with my body. The gospel impacts every area of your life. When you're doing things you know you shouldn't do, what do you need? Not laws. You need the gospel. That Christ died for me. That he changed me. That I'm a different person now. I'm actually different. I'm a new creation. I'm not a slave to sin like I once was. That's what you need to know when you're doing things you're not supposed to do. You need to know gospel, not law. Or how about the reverse? When you're not doing things you know you should do. What do you need to hear? Do it. What's wrong with you? Come on. No, you don't need law. You need gospel. The father I rejected sent his son to die for me. The son humbled himself and he suffered on the cross for me. What's the only response that makes sense now? I want to live for him. I want to show people the love that he showed me. You see this in scripture. The gospel, it's all about giving, not about getting. Listen to this, John 3, 16. You know this one well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Galatians 3 and 4 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or the verse I hang on my wall in my office, Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel is about giving, not about getting. And there's a fundamental shift that should happen. When God saves you, he radically changes you from a getter to a giver. Your relationship with God changes. Before you're a Christian, you think about God, you're like, God, why don't you give me everything that I want? I wanted a big house. I wanted a good marriage. I wanted good kids. Why did you give me these things? You're not giving me what I want. But then when you get saved, you're not thinking about getting from God anymore. You're thinking about giving to God. Lord, you gave me your son. How could I not want to just give everything I have as a reflection of gratitude to you for your gift to me? But I think what Paul's really getting at in these verses is that it radically changes, the gospel radically changes your relationship to others. Before the gospel, when you see another person, you think, what can I get from this person? Now, it might not be like, you know, money, or you're not going to steal from them, though he does talk about that in this context. But sometimes it's like, I want praise, I want pleasure, I want what I, you know, I want satisfaction, I want acceptance. You're thinking as a getter. But when the gospel changes your heart, you don't think as a getter anymore, you think as a giver. What can I give to the people that are in my life? I don't think about what I get from them, I think about what can I give to them. The gospel changes you from being a self-centered person to an others-centered person. And it begins to change every area of your life. Even some surprising ones, which is what we're going to get to now in chapter 7. It changes your marriage. Rather than thinking about what can I get from my spouse, I'm thinking now, what can I give to my spouse? Even in the area of sexuality. Or if you're a single person, which we'll get to later in this chapter, you're not thinking about what can I get to make me happy? You're thinking about what can I give to make other people happy? Giving, not getting, is the essence of the gospel, and it's the essence of what it means to glorify God in your body. And so let's look at these two topics that Paul brings up. First, giving, not getting, in marriage, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is what they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now Paul enters in and says, But... Because of temptation to sexuality, sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Not a very sexy-sounding verse, but there you have it. Uh, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Why? For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
In these verses, Paul is really thinking about how does the gospel apply to your sex life as a husband and wife? That's what he's doing. It applies to everything in your life. And so why not have it apply to this? You can see their slogan uh, in verse 1. They have a slogan. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now this, is, of course, is the complete pendulum swing from the other slogan that they had, which is, all things are lawful for me, therefore I can do whatever I want with my body. Right? And that led to all kinds of sexual immorality, destructive behavior. And so some say, well, that's really bad, so let's swing the other side all the way to this side, which says all sex is bad. Sex is the problem, let's just get rid of it, whether you're married or not. No sex better than sexual immorality. But really what Paul's getting at is that sex is good, and sex has a place, and it is very powerful. Now, if you take it outside of God's design, it's going to be powerful and destructive, but kept within God's design, it's going to be powerful and beautiful. Our family went to uh, Bass Lake last week for a couple days. Uh, some dear friends gifted us with a couple nights down there. And in this uh, hotel that we were staying at, they had a fireplace. And it was great. It was this gas fireplace. I mean, it's as easy as you just flip on the switch and you have this beautiful fire. You can turn it off. It was the highlight, you know, one of the highlights of the trip. You know, the girls were sleeping down in the living room because they wanted to watch the fire and all these kinds of things. And that's really kind of like Paul's kind of giving that idea is as Northern Californians, we understand fire is powerful and can be incredibly destructive if it's uncontrolled. But we don't want to swing the pendulum and say fire, therefore, is bad. We should never have it. No, in the proper context, fire is powerful and beautiful. And that's what Paul's saying. Sex is not the problem. It's that you're using sex outside of the fireplace that God designed which is marriage between a husband and a wife. Kept within that fireplace, sex is good. And it's beautiful, and it's a gift, and it was given to us by God for our enjoyment in marriage. Sex is also, Paul says, a defense against immorality. He says in verse 2, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he's very realistic about temptation. You know, Paul never says, like, what's wrong with you? Why would you ever be tempted? No, Paul is very realistic. He understands the nature of temptation, him being himself a single man, I'm sure. And he says that one of the great things about sex within marriage is that it does provide, actually, a nice defense against immorality outside of marriage. I would say that this is not God's primary design for sex, but it is a helpful deterrent against immorality. A healthy sex life with your spouse is a helpful defense against sexual immorality. There are a lot of temptations out there. And one way that God helps you battle those temptations is a regular sex life at home. That's what Paul's saying. But don't go to the flip side of this. Although regular intimacy is a helpful defense, a lack of sex within marriage is never an excuse for sexual sin. Some people will take a verse like this and they'll twist it and they'll blame their spouse. You're not giving me what I need. That's why I'm going and sinning in these other ways. And that is a distortion of what Paul's saying here. 
1 Corinthians 6.18, he's already made himself perfectly clear. What do you do when you're tempted for sexual immorality? Flee. You run. You get away. You don't say, oh, well, you get away unless your spouse is not giving you what you want, then you can indulge. No, you run. You get away. As a spouse, if your spouse falls to sexual sin, you are not responsible for your spouse's sexual sin. This verse should not be used by a spouse to manipulate the other into sex. Because even if you're married, there's always going to be times when regular sexual activity is not possible. And in those times, you have to be faithful to your Lord and flee sexual immorality. Don't use this as an excuse. So on the one side, we do want to help each other resist temptation as husband and wife. On the other side, you are responsible for your sin. So don't get those mixed up. All right, but the heart of sex, I think Paul talks about in verses 3 and 4, that sex in marriage is about giving, not getting. Sex in marriage is to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. This is not primarily instructions for how husbands can have a good sex life. Paul wants both husband and wife to be fulfilled and enjoy sex. It's mutual, it's reciprocal, and we see that in verses 3 and 4. He actually starts very shockingly in verse 3. This would have been shocking to his readers, where he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. This is a male-dominated society that Paul's writing to, and yet he starts with, hey, husbands, guess what your priority should be in the home, in your intimacy? Your pleasure? No, your wife's pleasure. That should be your focus in your sex life as a husband, should be your wife's pleasure, not your own. Now, of course, likewise, he says, this is also true for the wife. He says, likewise, the wife should give to her husband. So wives, what's your focus in your sex life? It should be your husband's pleasure, not your own. That you're each seeking the other's interest above your own. And that's exactly what Paul says love does in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love does not insist on its own way. It serves the other person. And so that's true in our sexual relationships within marriage. Paul continues, verse 4, says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now Paul's male readers were probably thinking, that's right. But then what does he do? He adds, likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You're indebted to each other. These are debt terms that Paul's talking about. That you have a relationship where you want to think of yourself as meeting the needs of your spouse. Now, each of you is to think that way. Husbands, I'm concerned with my wife's pleasure. Wives, you're concerned with your husband's pleasure. That is Christ's vision for your sex life. That it's about giving. It's not about getting. That it's about the other person's rights and desires, not your own. And really, in some ways, like, that's the theme of 1 Corinthians. Like, stop focusing on yourselves. Focus on others. How much more in the bedroom of your own home? And really, that's the theme of the gospel. Stop thinking about yourself. God thought about you. Christ laid down his life for you. He didn't seek to be served. He sought to serve. 
This is the gospel. But how countercultural is that when it comes to sex? When our world says you do whatever you want, you want to please yourself, it doesn't matter. Like, you just get whatever you want and have as much fun as you want and focus on meeting your own sexual desires. That's what our world says. And Paul says, no. That's never been what sex is about. Sex has been about pleasing your spouse. And if you're both doing that, you can have a vibrant sex life. God says, if you want a vibrant sex life, what do you focus on? Not your own pleasure, but your spouse's pleasure. And I think we have to fight temptation with that. I think all sort of sexual temptation comes when we start to pursue our own pleasure. And we need to remind ourselves that's not what sex is for. Sex primarily, I'm supposed to think about it as this is a way to please someone else. Notice also in these verses that Paul sees sex as something to be given, not something to be demanded. Your responsible as a husband is to give to your wife. Your responsibility as a wife is to give to your husband. It does not say husbands go demand sex from your wife or wives go demand sex from your husband. No, a demand for sex leads to pain and grief and tension and distance and abuse. The focus of our sex life is not on what do I need, what do I get, you better give me what I need. It's how can I give to my spouse. Now because of that, good sex is going to require a lot of communication. It's not just going to happen. Because most of us don't know exactly what our spouse would want. So we're going to need to talk about it. So several things that you should be talking about as husband and wife as it relates to your intimacy. First, communicate about hindrances to intimacy. Maybe your past relationships. Maybe you were abused. Those things are going to affect your intimacy in marriage. As a spouse, you should ask your spouse, are there any things in your past that affect your view of intimacy? Do you see intimacy as a good thing or do you see intimacy as a painful thing or an embarrassing thing. As husband and wife, you should be talking about those things. Throughout the course of your marriage and your relationship, your bodies are going to go through all kinds of different changes. And you want to communicate with each other about how are those changes affecting your sexual relationship. You also want to communicate as husband and wife about what helps you get led into intimacy. Right? Husbands, you should be concerned. I want to ask my wife, like, what helps you as you think about being intimate later in the day? Wives, the same thing for your husband. You want to think about, I want this to be pleasurable for you. What's going to help you as we think about that? This is where something like, you know, knowing your spouse's love language, those kinds of things can actually be good. Like, if your spouse loves quality time, like, I want to give them quality time. If they love you know, words of affirmation, I want to give them words of affirmation. I'm, again, I'm not seeking my own interests, I'm seeking the interests of my spouse. You'll also want to communicate about what is most pleasurable to you or not pleasurable to you in intimacy. Are there things that you like? Are there things that you don't like? Are there things we're doing now that make you uncomfortable, that you'd rather not do? Like, we should talk as husband and wife about these things. They shouldn't just be assumed. They shouldn't be brushed under the rug. We should talk about them. 
Something else that you want to talk about is the reality of temptation. Husbands and wives need to be honest with each other about the areas of temptation in their life. We had friends from a previous church, and they were in a circumstance where the wife was working, the husband was sort of looking for a job in school, and he was home with the kids. And he started going to the park, you know, taking his kids to the park and having a good time. And there was another mom there, and she was bringing her kids to the park. And they started talking, and, you know, they sort of started enjoying talking to each other. The husband started to feel like, kind of wondering about his motives, like, why am I going to the park? Is it because I want the kids to have fun, or is it, do I enjoy getting the attention from this other mom? And so they had to have, he and, he and his wife had to have an honest conversation about, I'm feeling tempted in this area, and I want to let you know so that you can pray for me, and because I don't want to go back to the park anymore. I'll find a different park to take the kids to, because I want to flee from immorality. As husbands and wives, we should be talking about these things, talking about our, our areas of temptation. How can we help each other in the midst of it? So all that to say that good sex doesn't just happen. It takes a lot of communication. It takes time. And it's going to change over time, over the course of your relationship. So be intentional about talking to your spouse about sex. And then also, don't be afraid to talk about it with some trusted friends. You know, as Tim said, I think he's right. Like, as Christians, we shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed to talk about sex. In fact, you know, we have a, our small group, we were working through the sermons from the last several weeks, and we were talking about them, and we had actually a great, really frank, open discussion. Uh, not anything crazy, but it was just, it was a good, honest discussion about some of the challenges of being married and temptation and being single and temptation and all of these different things. And as Christians, I thought it was a great thing. It was a great thing for us to be able to talk about. So Paul's norm, as husband and wife, there should be regular intimacy that's focused on your spouse's pleasure. That's Paul's vision, that's Christ's vision, that's God's vision and design for your sex life. Now there are exceptions to that. Paul mentions one in verse 5. He says again, the norm is that you're not depriving one another. But perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul does give an exception for regular times of intimacy and he says those exceptions they should be temporary, right? He says in verse 5 for a limited time. He says also that those agreements have to be mutual. He says by agreement. If a spouse does not agree, then you should not pursue an exception to the norm of regular sex in your marriage. It's also purposeful, right? Why does he say you would do that? For the purpose of prayer, right? To devote yourselves to prayer. He's almost viewing sex as like a form of fasting, right? We fast from food when we want to focus more of our attention on the Lord. Paul says there might actually be times in your life when you want to fast from sex to focus your attention more on the Lord. You know, what does Paul have in mind? I don't know exactly, but I could see one example being, let's say you have a friend or a loved one, and their marriage is going through a really hard time. And you want to say, I want to I do something to, you know, to, to show that I'm with them in that struggle, and I want to pray for them. And so you might, as husband and wife, agree, like, I want to actually, let's set our sexual relationship aside, and let's really just seek the Lord in prayer for, you know, our friend whose marriage is struggling right now. 
So I could see that as being a way that you might apply a verse like this. But again, the norm for your marriage is regular sexual interaction focused on your spouse's need. Now, if this is not the norm in your marriage, then you need to communicate. You need to talk to your spouse. Communicate with one another. Communicate with someone that you trust to talk about these things because they're important. Paul puts them here for a reason. God puts them here for a reason. Now, for a moment, I also want to discuss something that, you know, we haven't discussed directly in these series of topics, and it's the issue of pornography. You know, pornography is a sin. And pornography is the enemy of genuine intimacy, right? Because pornography is all about what? Getting, not giving. Intimacy, real intimacy is about giving, not getting. Pornography is all about getting, not giving. It's an ugly distortion of God's beautiful design for sex within marriage. Pornography and masturbation will destroy sexual intimacy in your marriage. It'll destroy your spouse, because how can they trust you if you're having all these fantasies about other women or other men? It'll destroy, it can threaten to destroy your marriage, and it can destroy you. Pornography, again, it's about getting. It's not about giving. Pornography and masturbation are individual. When God says sex is designed to be mutual and reciprocal between a husband and a wife, and pornography is harmful. It's harmful to you. They've actually done studies, brain scans, of people that regularly look at pornography, and their brain is altered because of it. It's harmful to you. It's harmful to your spouse for obvious reasons that you're spending your time fantasizing about someone that is not your spouse, someone that maybe your spouse can never measure up to physically, and things like that. It's harmful to your marriage. It destroys trust. And it's actually harmful to the people that you're looking at. They've done studies of people that produce pornography, people that are sex workers. They have higher rates of depression, abuse, and suicide. Pornography is a major contributor to sex trafficking of both adults and minors. It's harmful. Paul, you know, in the Old Testament, when David sins with Bathsheba, it's really interesting. He sees her, and what is he supposed to do? When he's tempted to sexual immorality, what are you supposed to do? Run. What does he do? He asks questions. Oh, who is that across the way? And listen to, so he asks questions of the people around him, asking who that person is. Look what this person says to David. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What's David's counselor trying to do? This is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. You shouldn't be doing this. You should run away. You should flee. And of course, we know David doesn't in that moment. But those are the thoughts that we need to help ourselves with in the midst of those battles, those temptations. This is harmful to everyone. It's harmful to me. It's harmful to my spouse. It's harmful to the people that I'm looking at. And we need to flee from sexual immorality. That being said, pornography is forgivable. It's not the unpardonable sin. God will forgive you for indulging in pornography, and God can actually cause you to have victory over pornography. Think back to chapter 6, verse, 11, verse 9 and 10 and 11, right? Sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, such 
were some of you. God can bring you to a place where you could say, I used to be a sex addict. I used to be addicted to pornography. God can do that. He can do that so that you're actually different. You can conquer this by his grace and through his spirit. So don't believe otherwise. Don't believe you'll always be a victim to this. God can give you victory, even in this area. Amen. And so we see in marriage that the sexual relationship is all about giving, not getting. But in this chapter, Paul is not only concerned with married people. He also has counsel for singles. And his counsel really is the same. As a single person, don't worry about getting things, getting a spouse, getting this, getting that. Just focus your attention on giving. Giving and not getting in singleness. Look at verses 6 through 9. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Like Paul says, I wish everyone was single like me. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another, right? So singleness is a gift, marriage is a gift. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What's Paul's advice to singles? First thing is this, singleness is a gift from God. Now, you might say, God, I hope you kept the receipt, because I don't want this gift at all. I'd much prefer any other gift than this gift. But you have to fight, right? In the midst of that, I know it's, it's hard to be single, but you have to fight and say, God, you're giving me a gift. This, me being single, is a gift from you. Singleness is not a commentary on your fitness for marriage, right? It's not like, oh, you wouldn't be single if you were marriage material, no. God's giving you a gift in your singleness. So enjoy that gift. This isn't like John 9, where the disciples see a man who's blind, and they say, all right, so who sinned? Was it the man, or was it his parents that he's blind? What's their assumption? Somebody did something wrong for this person to be blind. And what does Jesus say? No, he's blind for the glory of God. So when someone's single, it's not, well, somebody's doing something wrong, there's something wrong with this person that they're still single. It's like, no. They're single as a gift from God to them. Now we might say, well, I want to be married. Like, when's it going to happen? When God, in his timing and his goodness, decides to exchange one gift for another gift and brings you a spouse. In the meantime, what would Paul say? Look to give, not to get. Seek the Lord, not a spouse. You know, if you may have heard it said before, the best way, you know, to sort of find a spouse or the best way to live your single life is devote yourself to the Lord. Run straight ahead, straight at the Lord. And it might be that as you're running toward the Lord, you might look to your side and then, oh, there's someone, you know, there's a, maybe a spouse right there. But that's what you want to do. Focus on running after the Lord, not running after a spouse. Singleness also presents unique opportunities to give and not to get. Look what Paul says in verse 32, later on in this chapter. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Right? I don't want your mind to be divided. He says the unmarried man, right, the single man, is anxious about what? The things of the Lord. 
how to please the Lord. If you're single, like, what, what's on my mind? I want to please the Lord. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. Not like evil worldly things, but just things of the world, like how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and, secu and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's your focus if you're married? The Lord. But you also have the concerns of your spouse to think about. If you're single, I devote myself to the Lord. I have no other concerns, other earthly concerns. I can devote myself fully to the Lord. We went to Yosemite earlier this week, and it was a wonderful trip, you know, but we have kids. So half dome, not going to happen. You know, we're not going to hike half dome when we have little kids with us, right? There are, we don't have complete freedom in our Yosemite hiking experience because of our earthly relationships. And Paul's saying the same thing. If you're single, you have actually kind of complete freedom to serve the Lord however you want. When you get married, you're not going to have that same freedom. When you have kids, you're not going to have that same freedom. Now, of course, you will seek the Lord and serve him in other ways, but those are hindrances to just full freedom to serve the Lord however you want. So as a single person, think about what opportunities do I have to give to the Lord that I might not have if I get married. So go on a missions trip. Devote yourself to serving the body of Christ, right? Don't devote yourself to more video games, but devote yourself to pleasing the Lord. And now don't just do it for this reason, but you're way more likely to meet a quality potential spouse doing that than if you did if you just went to the club. So serve the Lord, don't go to the club, and you'll find a good spouse, but primarily do it for the Lord, not for the spouse. Amen. <laughs> All right, but Paul does say in verse 9 that singleness is not for everyone. It's not a gift that everyone enjoys. It's just a gift for a few. He says back in verse 9, If you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what is Paul saying? I think, remember this in context. He's saying that if you're single, you're undivided, you're devoted to the Lord, right? You have a strong desire. I want to please the Lord. I'm fleeing from sexual immorality. I want to please him. But even as you're doing that, as a single person, you might still have the desire to be married and to enjoy sexual intimacy with a spouse. And Paul says, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good desire. So you, have a, you love the Lord, but you also desire to be married. And Paul says, if you have that strong desire to be married, then get married. Like, it's not a rule. You don't have to stay single. You can absolutely get married. Now, I want to say, what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying if you're somebody who is regularly, consistently, currently struggling with sexual immorality, you should get married. He's not saying that. If you're someone who's regularly sexually active in practicing sexual immorality, marriage is not going to fix that. If you're someone who's regularly engaging in pornography, marriage is not going to fix that. In fact, if you bring those things into your marriage, it's going to cause way more harm in your marriage. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying you're devoted to the Lord, but you still have a desire to get married, then by all means, get married. 
He is not saying you're in the throes of sexual immorality, so you better get married. Do you see that? And so we want to be wise about that. Because, again, he just talked about in chapters 5 and 6, what, if you're in the throes of sexual immorality, do you need to get married? No, you need to repent. And you need to come to the Lord. And if you repent, he'll cleanse you, he'll wash you, then you can pursue a marriage that glorifies him. Now, I know these, these are hard things to think through and to work through. There are things that maybe, you know, we don't talk about a lot in church. Maybe we should talk about them more. But if you have the thought in your mind, like maybe you're in the midst of sexual sin right now, or maybe you have sexual sin in your past, and you might have that thought, like, does God really love me? Can he really forgive me for these things? Or yeah, it's like maybe he'll forgive me, but it's like he'll sort of just forgive me because that's kind of his job, but it's like he doesn't really like me. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. It's a well-known story, parable of Christ, but I think it speaks to this idea. Can God love sexually immoral people? Can he welcome them? Look at verse 11. It says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this son goes to his father, basically tells his father, I wish you were dead, because I want my inheritance now. The only problem is you're still alive. So could you give me my inheritance now? Because I, I can find way more pleasure outside of this house than inside this house. That's what this son is saying. And what does he do? The father amazingly actually gives him that, gives him that, the, the property. And what does the son do? He goes off and he wastes it all in reckless living. His brother describes him this way later on in the chapter. He says that this son devoured his father's wealth on prostitutes. This is a sexually immoral person. Convinced I'm, if I seek my sin, if I seek my pleasure, my life's going to be way better than if I stay in my father's house. And he went probably through woman after woman after woman seeking to gratify his sexual desires. And he makes a mess of his life. But verse 17, he finally comes to his senses. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he finally gets to the end of himself, and he thinks, I, I should go home. I mean, my father treats servants well. Like, I know that I've sinned against him in such a way I'll never be his son again. But maybe, maybe he'll be forgiving enough and I can just become his servant. That's what's going through his mind. And so what's the father's response? What's the father's response to his son who wished he was dead? What's the father's response to the son who was sure his sin would satisfy him more than his father's 
love. What's the father's response to the son who took his inheritance and spent it on prostitutes and sexual immorality? Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. If you are in the throes of sexual sin, if you have sexual sin in your past, how does the father feel about you? He wants you to come home. How is he going to receive? He's going to run to you. He's pacing. He's waiting. He just wants to see your head on the horizon headed home, and he will run to you, and he will embrace you, and he will fall on your neck and kiss you, and he will celebrate with you because you were dead, and now you're alive. You were lost, and now you're found. Come to your father. And you might think, yeah, but my life is so messed up. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but, I, but I've done things I never thought I would do. I, I've gone to places I never thought I would go. Doesn't matter. Come home, and he'll receive you. Yeah, but I've hurt people. I've burned bridges. I don't even recognize myself anymore. It doesn't matter. Come home. He will receive you. And he will, with compassion, fall on you and hug you and embrace you. And he's not killing the fatted calf. He killed his son so that he could welcome you back home. Come to him. The Father loves to receive repentant sinners. Come home and he will receive you with joy. And he'll transform you from a getter into a giver like him. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve this kind of grace. The prodigal son is not a picture of the worst of sinners. The prodigal son is a picture of every sinner. We convinced ourselves that life would be better outside of your house. We took all the good gifts that you gave us and we used them for ourselves and we spent them on things to please ourselves and not to please you. And we made a mess of our lives. But when we came to our senses, when your spirit worked in our heart to cause us to come to our senses, and we headed home knowing that we didn't deserve to be called your son anymore, and we were wondering, would you receive us? We were amazed and humbled to find you running towards us, and that you embraced us, and that you kissed us, and you said, get the best robe and the best ring and kill the fatted calf because my son is home. We would have been happy just to be your servants in your house. And yet you made us sons and daughters. And we are forever grateful. And this should impact every area of our life. It should impact the way that we live our lives as single people, that we should be so focused on you and on giving to others what you've given to us. It should affect us as husband and wife that we don't care about getting from our spouse. We only want to do, we only want to give to our spouse. 
because that's what you've done for us. So continue your work of transformation that you've already started. Make us more like you. Make us givers, not getters. In Christ's name, amen.